You with me? Lord, you truly are great, and that is why we can trust you. Your greatness is on display in so many different ways, but we look primarily to the cross to find your greatness on display for us, your greatness that overflows in grace, power that changes us, draws us into relationship with you, and doesn't consume us. And so we come to you now as needy people, needy people who experience the darkness of this world so often, but we confess with David Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you are with us. It is because you are with us that we can abandon fear and that we can endure the darkness in whatever form it takes. Death, sickness, pain, relational breakdown, sin. All of it is ugly. All of it is dark. All of it clouds our vision. And you are still good in the midst of it all. So shine the light in our eyes so that we might see you more clearly this morning. Help us to open your word with the desire to hear your voice, dispelling the shadows and revealing yourself in the midst of them. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for loving us so richly. Help us to hear well now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're going to look at the third of the trio of judgment parables Jesus tells against the Jewish leaders just a few days before he will be arrested and crucified. I'd like to take a moment to review the two parables that concluded Matthew 21, which we looked at last week. The first was the parable of the two sons. Father commanded his first son to go work in his vineyard. And the first son responded with blatant rebellion, refusing to obey his father. But then, later, he changed his mind and went to the vineyard and got to work. Meanwhile, the father went on to his other son. He commanded his second son to go into the vineyard and work, and this son responded respectfully, saying, Yes, sir, I'll go. But then he actually didn't go. Jesus then draws the Jewish leaders into the story, asking them to draw the conclusion. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? And they rightly identify the first son. Though he, at first, responded with outright rebellion, he ends up going in being obedient. Then Jesus lands his blow. The gotcha moment of the parable comes, as he says in Matthew 21, 31, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors... And the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. The Jewish leaders were represented by the second son. And Jesus highlights God's indictment of the Jewish leadership. You said you'd obey, but you haven't obeyed. And he hints toward what we see in the second parable as he tells the Jewish leaders that the tax collectors and prostitutes who initially lived their lives in blatant rebellion against God and his word, they're the ones represented by the first son, And they will enter God's kingdom before the Jewish leaders. Indeed, instead of the Jewish leaders. 
The second parable was the parable of the wretched tenant farmers. Jesus told the story of a vineyard owner who hires some tenants while to come live on his property and take care of his vineyard while he is going away for a long period of time. Their job was to make sure that the vineyard produced its fruit. And then they were to deliver that fruit to the owner of the vineyard. They would get a cut of the harvest as their pay. The vineyard owner sent servants to collect his fruit, but the tenants refused to hand over the fruit, and they even abused his servants when they came in. In the vineyard owner's grace, he kept sending servants, and their hostility toward these servants continued to escalate. Finally, the vineyard owner graciously sends them his own son to retrieve the fruit that rightfully belongs to him, but the tenants hatch a plot to murder the son, convincing themselves that they could then claim the vineyard as their very own. Again, at this point, Jesus draws the Jewish leaders into the story and invites them to pronounce their judgment on these tenant farmers. And again, they give the correct answer. The question is there in verse 40. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And in verse 41, the chief priests and elders answer correctly and thereby unwittingly announced God's sentence against themselves. They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. This is the sentence that God is pronouncing against the leadership of God's kingdom. God had given the stewardship of the vineyard, the stewardship of the people of God, the kingdom of God, to these Jewish leaders, and they have done a very poor job of cultivating a fruitful vineyard. So the sentence is, your leadership in God's kingdom must be replaced. I will hand it over to others because you refuse to fulfill your responsibility. And, by the way, you also will kill God's own son. In the story, that already happened, but it is a prophetic announcement of Jesus' own death. So the parable of the two sons delivered God's indictment. You said you'd obey, but you haven't. And the parable of the wretched tenant farmers delivered God's sentence. Your leadership must be replaced, eliminated, and handed over to others. So now, this third parable we're going to look at this morning in chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel pictures God's execution of that sentence. He depicts his destruction of their city, the city of Jerusalem. And he's going to bring in others who will enjoy the banquet that God has prepared for his son. Now, as we enter this final parable of the three, which I'm calling the parable of the called wedding guests, I want to call attention to its difficulty and complexity. One writer has admitted that this parable, quote, is enough to make any interpreter go weak in the knees. I consider it among the most difficult parables of all. So, let's tread lightly here and see what we can see clearly. Now, usually this parable is referred to as the parable of the wedding banquet or the parable of the wedding feast, but the focus of the story is on the calling and treatment of the guests. After we read through the passage, I'll highlight why I think it's so complicated, and then we'll walk our way through it. So follow along as we read Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, 
Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is a very interesting story about a king and his son. Now let me try to identify why I think it's easy to get off on the wrong foot when trying to understand this parable. As we read the rest of the Bible, we know that there is coming in the future something that is often called the Messianic Banquet. It's depicted in some fashion in Isaiah 25, and it's depicted in Revelation 19, referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think what we often do when we read this parable is that we assume that it is intended to describe that Messianic Banquet. We rightly see that this parable tells about a wedding feast that is put on for the king's son, and we recognize that the king in the parable represents God, and the son in the parable represents Jesus. But to equate the banquet in the parable to the marriage supper of the lamb or the messianic banquet, I believe, is a mistake. The main reason I think this is a mistake is the introduction of the parable in verse 2. Jesus begins by saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Thus, the story that unfolds is not literally an aspect of the coming kingdom. The marriage supper of the Lamb of Revelation 19 is actually an aspect of the coming kingdom, which fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 25. But here, the story Jesus tells is an earthly story of an earthly king throwing an earthly wedding for his son. And certain parts of how that might normally happen illustrate important truths about the heavenly kingdom Jesus is bringing to the earth now. The story is meant to tell the Jewish leaders, the disciples, the crowds, and us Christian readers an important lesson about how Jesus' kingdom operates now. This story has much to do with how one enters the kingdom of heaven. Now, what Jesus has preached throughout his ministry, that sinners must repent and believe the gospel and live the life of kingdom citizenship in order to enter the kingdom, is illustrated by this story. The end of the parable does indeed push us forward to the final judgment, but that is to serve as the warning edge of this parable for his listeners. So let's begin walking our way through the parable. 
In verses 1 to 7, we see a focus on the invitation or the call. And the picture is very much of some who reject the call and how those called are judged. Now, as you look back through verses 1 to 7, you probably see the word invited several times in your English Bible. However, the first occurrence of this word in our passage there in verse 3 is translated in the ESV as to call. I wish our English Bibles would consistently translate the term, at least in this passage. I suppose it does make for some awkward English, for then we'd have to read in verse 3, he sent his servants to call those who had been called, but it is the normal word used for calling throughout the New Testament and throughout these seven verses. So what's going on? Sketch some of the background a little bit here. It was common practice in the ancient world when someone was hosting a big banquet for a wedding like this, he would send out what might be what we could think of as equivalent to a save the date announcement. But in their case, the date hasn't been announced yet. It would simply say there's a wedding coming at some point in the near future and they'd send these notices out to the honored guests, those that the host wants to invite to call to attend the wedding. It would often be a father initiating this process, sending out announcements that said, my son is getting married, we're making all the preparations, and we want you to be there. Our parable begins after that has already happened. The people in view at the beginning of the parable have already received the initial announcement. The action of the story begins with the father sending out a call to those who had already received the first calling, the initial announcement. So what does this represent in reality? These people who had already been called depict the Jewish people who have their Old Testament Hebrew Bible that announced the coming of a Messiah and the coming of God's kingdom. And the assumption is that these Jewish people have RSVP'd. They've responded saying, yes, when the Messiah comes, we'll be ready. When he shows up, we'll show up. We'll follow him when he arrives. We'll come to be part of the celebration of the inauguration of God's heavenly kingdom on earth. This is assumed behind verse 3. Verse 3 then describes the arrival of the banquet, the arrival of the kingdom. This is when the second invitations are sent out. The king sends out his servants to announce that the time has come. The wedding feast is ready. And so he calls those who have already been called, already been invited to the wedding feast. But now that the time has come, those who had already received the call refused his second call. This is what we've been seeing in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the Jewish people at large, and especially the Jewish leaders, have said to Jesus, we're not coming. What was announced in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God coming into the world, the Messiah coming into the world, these Jewish people, particularly the leadership, have said, we'll be there, we'll show up, we'll follow, we'll do what's required, but now that it's here, now that he is here, they say, nah, No thanks, not interested, not coming. In all three of these parables, this rejection has been a feature of the story. The second son's agreement to go work in the vineyard, but then not actually going. 
the tenant farmer's agreement to care for the vineyard and provide the fruit of the vineyard to the rightful owner, but then their attempt to keep the fruit for themselves and their abuse and murder of all who were sent to collect the fruit. Now here, those who were on the guest list are refusing to show up. But then also in all three of these parables, the father, the vineyard owner, and here the king respond to this situation of rejection in an amazingly gracious way. Rather than punish the first son for his refusal to go work in the vineyard, he simply moves on to the second son. Rather than immediately replacing the tenants for their refusal to provide fruit, he repeatedly sends servants over a long period of time, even sending his own son to seek to persuade them to do the right thing. So here, this king, who had already put these people on the guest list, already sent out their invitations, and already received their RSVPs, indicating that they would come to the wedding feast, now, when they refuse to show up, the king certainly could send an army or send police to wipe them out right then and there. They deserve judgment for their dishonor of the king, rejecting what he's offering here. But he doesn't. Instead, he sends more servants. He adds a measure of urgency But with each extra invitation, their responses become worse and worse. Each person reveals that he cares more about his own pursuits than the pursuits of the king. And like with the tenant farmers, their responses escalate in violence and hostility against the king's agents. Perhaps we can appreciate the king's anger in verse 7. I find myself thinking it's about time the king gets angry. However, we might think that the expression of wrath is over the top. He destroyed their city and executed all of them. Sometimes in Jesus' parables, the strangest details, the details that seem to differ the most from what you would expect in the real-life situation being described, that's actually where the main points of the parable come to the surface. Think about it. The wedding feast is ready. Dinner is ready to be served, and the king sends out his army to go wipe out these people and destroy their city. That seems a little out of place. This detail of the parable should not be ignored. Like in the previous parable, we have here a prophetic announcement of something that is coming in the near future, the destruction of Jerusalem. That's going to happen about 40 years from when Jesus says these words. Just like in the parable of the wretched tenant farmers, we had a prophetic announcement of Jesus' own death. Here, we get a prophetic announcement of the destruction of Jerusalem. When we move into Matthew 24, as Jesus teaches his disciples, he's going to tie together very closely the destruction of Jerusalem with his own death. We must view these two events as ultimately connected in God's plan, just as we saw prophesied in the book of Daniel. This parable follows in that train of thought. The judgment of the Jewish people is going to climax and culminate in the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. That is being depicted here in this parable. Let's press on into verses 8 to 10, where we see the king extending the call to others. Note the urgency again. The wedding feast is ready right now. It's time for dinner. It's time to celebrate. 
that those who had been invited, those who had been called, were not worthy. Their negative and hostile responses to the repeated call of the king demonstrated that they were not worthy to come to the banquet. The king then sends his servants out to the main roads. It's a very interesting phrase. This would refer to the main roads that went out of the city, which might provide a hint that we're talking about extending the call to Gentiles. But at the bare minimum, he's talking about a similar group of people to the ones mentioned in the first parable of this trio, the tax collectors and prostitutes and those like them. He's saying, go to the outsiders, those on the margins, and call them to the wedding feast, as many as you find. Then these servants went out and gathered all whom they could find. But notice the way they're characterized at the end of the first sentence of verse 10. Both bad and good. Now, some of you might be reading the NIV, which says good and bad, but the Greek has it as bad and good. And I think that's intentional and important. Most of the time in the Bible, it's good and bad, or good and evil, in that order. There seems to be an emphasis here, a priority laid on calling and welcoming the bad ones. These might be people that his servants would be hesitant to approach. The servants might be tempted to think, how could the king have these people in his palace? How could he have them as guests at his banquet? How could they be welcome in his kingdom? Nevertheless, the king's order is to bring them all in. Don't judge ahead of time whether they're worthy or not. Call them all in, both bad and good alike. Their response will show whether they are worthy or not. And finally, in verses 11 to 13... We come to this section about the clothing of the called, the question of the wedding garment. Someone seems to be discovered in the banquet who doesn't really belong there. He's not wearing the right kind of clothes. I'd like to suggest to you that we must hold this section tightly together with the rest of the parable. It's not a parable, a separate parable tacked on to this one, as some commentators have suggested. Both bad and good come into the wedding feast and participate in it and enjoy the meal by wearing the proper wedding garment. That's what it means in the imagery of the parable to enjoy the feast. To be a proper part of the kingdom celebration is to have a proper wedding garment. Now as we read this, we might wonder, um, how do they get this wedding garment Of course, we assume that you dress up when you go to a wedding, right? But remember that these guests were called in off the streets. Where could they have gotten clean clothes appropriate for the feast? We have to remember the urgency of the call. Dinner was ready to be served when the servants were sent out to fetch these bad and good guests. There's not much time to go out and buy a new wardrobe or even to return home to change clothes. And given the people who've been brought in from the streets, it seems that many of them might not have had the means to supply such a garment for themselves in any case. So I think we might be intended to infer that the king himself supplies the clothes. This actually is something that was practiced in the ancient world at banquets like this. But in any case, in the story, the king expects 
that the guests will be properly dressed. So the king comes in for an inspection. He hasn't seen the guests. They weren't originally on the guest list. He doesn't know these folks. So as he inspects his guests, he finds a man not wearing the appropriate clothes. Look again at verse 12. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? There's that word friend again. We saw it back in Matthew chapter 20 in the parable of the good employer and the envious workers. And we'll see it again when Jesus uses the word to address Judas as Judas betrays him. The Greek word implies more distance than our English word friend. But if you put a certain tone to it, you can get the point across. Essentially, I hear the king saying, Hey, pal, how did you get in here? He's using this term to address someone for whom he's done something very kind, very generous, calling him to the wedding feast, but who has not responded very well, showing him a measure of disrespect. So the king is identifying the distance between him and this guest by using this term, implying a bit of a rebuke. What was the man's response? Silence. He was speechless. He doesn't offer any excuses, and that's because he has no excuse. He should have been able to supply the clothes. And I think we might imagine that he had been offered the appropriate garment upon entry to the banquet. Try to imagine how this would have played out. One of the king's servants brought this man off the streets. He was probably there in work clothes, or possibly even less. As he enters the palace for the feast, the attendant at the door extends the offer of a clean garment to wear for the feast. And the man says, no, what I'm wearing is fine. I don't think I need anything new. I think I'm fine. I think I can come in just as I am. That could be taken as a disrespectful lack of recognition of the gift that's being offered. You think you can come in and enjoy the gift on your own terms? Nope. The king responds pretty harshly. Look again at verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds pretty bad. I'd like to linger here for just a moment. There have been some students of Scripture in recent years who are teaching that this language of binding hand and foot, casting into outer darkness, is something that genuine believers might experience in heaven so that this parable is not describing the situation of someone who is being cast into hell for eternal judgment. Rather, the picture is describing a genuine believer in heaven being cast out of the enjoyment of the messianic banquet. They're in heaven, but they're going to experience weeping and gnashing of teeth there. Jesus uses this language a lot, particularly in parables, and if you just compare the parables patiently... Every time Jesus uses this kind of language, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think you can clearly see that he is talking about the final judgment, about eternal condemnation in hell. That's another detail that suggests to me that Jesus is not here describing the actual marriage supper of the Lamb as depicted in Revelation 19. So... When does the king come in for his inspection of the guests? I believe this is, again, a picture of final judgment, as we have already seen in two other parables in Matthew's Gospel. In the parable of the dragnet, 
Jesus describes how good fish and bad fish are caught in the net, but then they're all sorted out. In Matthew 13, 49, Jesus says that at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Also, in the parable of of the wheat and the weeds, where Jesus had described a field sown with good seed and with weeds, the servants wondered whether they should just pull up the weeds as soon as they're recognized. And the farmer insists that the weeds must be left alone until the harvest, and then they will be separated out. He then explains what he means in Matthew 13, 39 to 42. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Reading these two earlier parables in connection with this one in Matthew 22 is certainly the right idea. But at this point, we recall that Jesus has told the three parables in Matthew 21 and 22 specifically against the Jewish leaders. However, I believe in this last paragraph of this last parable, Jesus broadens out his concern so that he can bring some application over to his disciples and all who would come to follow Jesus because they are to be citizens of his kingdom. And there's one among their number whose name is Judas, who does not truly belong to the group. So this part of the parable comes across as a warning, not to his opponents, but to those who follow him, but falsely. People can come among us as a church, claiming to follow Jesus, but not really being among his sheep. Jesus has already warned us about this repeatedly in this very gospel, in his teaching concerning false disciples, goats, and wolves in sheep's clothing. The conclusion of this parable fits in that stream. There will come a day of reckoning and revealing. You may be able to deceive the people around you. You may be able to convince them that you are a follower of Jesus by the way you attend church regularly or even by the way you serve other people and by the words that you say with your mouth. But you cannot fool Jesus. And there will come a day when you will be exposed. As J.C. Ryle says, commenting on this passage, all who claim to be Christians but are not Christ's will be detected, exposed, and eternally condemned at the last day. As Jesus presses the point of the parable home to his listeners, he speaks of the chosen among the called. Look at verse 14 again. For many are called, but few are chosen. In the parable, the many called included three distinct groups of people. The originally invited, honored guests, those bad and good brought in off the streets, and the improperly clothed fellow. The chosen ones must refer to those who actually attend the banquet in the proper clothing. Those originally honored guests end up destroyed, and the improperly clothed fellow ends up in outer darkness, weeping and gnashing his teeth. 
In verse 14, Jesus is applying the parable to his listeners, indicating theologically that what ultimately matters is God's choice. The few chosen ones who respond appropriately to the call and receive the proper clothes are those whom God has chosen. The Jewish leaders would certainly have assumed themselves to be among God's elect, God's chosen ones. Their response to Jesus has shown that God has not chosen them. Judas, too, will soon be exposed as someone God has not chosen. As we readers take in this parable, the main message is about responding to God's call, which comes to us through the preaching of the gospel. The Jewish leaders and the Jewish people at large have responded very poorly to Jesus' call. But in this parable, I see five ways of responding to God's call, four of them being wrong ways. In some ways, this lines up with the parable of the sower and the soils, where Jesus depicts three wrong ways of responding to the gospel and one correct way. Here, we see four wrong ways and one correct way. I'll move quickly through these as we approach the end of our time. The first response we saw was a rebellious refusal. When the invitation went out, those invited said, No, we won't come. That's just rebellious refusal. The second response we see is disinterested dismissal. These are the folks who went off to their own farms and to their own businesses. Note the emphasis on their own. This is dismissal because of a self-centered preoccupation with one's own priorities. J.C. Ryle says, Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel will kill its tens of thousands. Think about our own society today and think about the ways that people respond to the gospel. They've sat in church, but that doesn't seem to do anything to them. They've heard evangelistic messages or maybe you've talked personally with them about Jesus, but they don't care. They're concerned about how to make their retirement last longer. They're concerned about how they're going to succeed in school. They're concerned about how they can have the most pleasure in life. That's what they're all about. It's all about me. And I get to decide what's important to me. Jesus can't set my agenda for me. The third response we see in this parable is open opposition. Some people abused and even murdered the king's servants. That may be an increasingly likely experience for us in this country and the very near future. Open opposition to the gospel is increasing, but I don't think this is something that is particularly new. It's just taking new forms. And that opposition will continue until Jesus returns. Perhaps it's intensifying in our country, so be ready for that kind of response. The fourth negative response in the parable is of this man who shows up at the banquet without the wedding garment. He's one who is coming unclothed. Coming unclothed. As we saw with the historical background in mind, the man was, has probably rejected the proper clothing that's been offered to him. When the gospel is presented, such a person says, no, I'm good like this. Probably everyone in this building is familiar with the old hymn, Just As I Am, and it's sung as an invitational kind of hymn. And there is some truth to that way of thinking. God does indeed welcome us and accept us, accept us just as we are. 
But he does not leave us as we are. Coming into God's kingdom should change you. The truth of this parable and the truth of Jesus' broader teaching and the truth of the whole Bible is that when you come into God's kingdom truly, you are changed. You do become different. You don't have to change ahead of time, but in becoming a citizen of God's kingdom, Jesus, the king, changes you. He makes you different. So then, what's the proper response depicted in this parable? That would be to come to the banquet properly clothed, entering God's kingdom with the wedding garment on. That can happen to bad people and good people with whatever standards you use to define those terms. Both bad people and good people need a change of clothes. You need a change of identity. I want to close our time together thinking about clothing and the need for it. I wonder if you've noticed how important the theme of clothing is in the Bible. One writer says this, It is no exaggeration to say that one can trace the whole outline of biblical theology and salvation history through the motif of clothing. Rather than tell that whole story this morning, because that would probably take another hour to do it properly, I'd like to just show you how clothing imagery is used by Paul to illustrate the past sense of our salvation, the present ongoing sense of our salvation, and also the future sense of our salvation. So the past tense of our salvation appears in terms of clothing in Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You put on Christ as a garment. That Greek word literally refers to putting on clothes. You put on Christ. That's something that happened to you. It's already done. When you began to trust Jesus, you changed clothes. You began to wear Christ himself, metaphorically speaking. Also in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, we read, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You've taken off dirty clothes, throwing them away, and you've put on new, clean clothes. But immediately, he builds onto this the ongoing present sense of salvation. You've put on the new self, but it's being renewed in an ongoing sense, in knowledge, after the image of its creator. As you grow in knowledge of Christ, as you grow in intimacy with Christ, you're outer garment, your clothing is renewed, refreshed, so that it looks more like what it is, Christ himself. Continuing with more references to the present ongoing sense of salvation, we see this in Ephesians 4, 21 to 24, which is one long sentence in Greek, but I'm going to compress it so you can see the main point. You were taught in him to put off your old self and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and you were taught to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. How do you do that? The idea is that you are pursuing righteousness and holiness, like you put on your clothes every day. You don't dig the old dirty clothes out of the laundry hamper, right? Yuck! 
That's gross. Don't do that. Instead, every day you put on clean clothes. You seek to live out righteous behavior in obedience to Jesus. To walk in the good works that God has appointed for you. In Romans 13, 14, Paul gives the command like this. But put on the Lord, Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ by not allowing yourself to gratify the desires of the flesh. That is how you put on Christ every day. In one sense, you've already done that. You put on your new clean clothes once and for all, the moment you begin to trust Jesus for salvation. But you also get to do it over and over again. And that's not to say that you're being resaved. The imagery is flexible here. You are living out the salvation that you've already experienced. Finally, we can see the future expectation of salvation put in terms of clothing in 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Our desire should never be to be unclothed, to be found naked. Instead, we long to be further clothed, overclothed. He's talking about resurrection on the last day. Being found naked is a picture of death, separation of the spirit from the body. That is as unnatural as anything. Our true hope is to be further clothed. A picture of rapture. To be alive when Jesus returns so that he changes us. He puts the new body over our old one. It's a big overcoat. And we're looking forward to that. The overclothing that Paul anticipates here is the physical transformation of the outside of who we are. We've already experienced the inner transformation of our identity. And then throughout our Christian life, we, as we grow and as we pursue obedience, we experience this ongoing transformation. But then on the last day, we will experience a final radical transformation that is the resurrection of our bodies. I believe Jesus is using this clothing imagery in this parable, the wedding garment imagery, to illustrate Paul's second sense, the reality of our ongoing putting on the new clothing of good deeds, godly character, and obedience to God's word. So if the king's inspection of his guests is depicting the final judgment, and if his discovery of a guest at the feast without proper clothing, represents how Jesus will expose false believers, judging them according to their deeds. Then the lack of a garment represents the lack of good works in a person's life. In a similar image, being clothed for a wedding celebration, Revelation 19 describes the Lamb's bride, the church, like this. John hears what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, and they were crying out, 
Hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then John adds this explanatory comment, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The saints make up the church, the bride of Christ, and their clothing in white garments represents their righteous deeds during their lifetime on earth. These righteous deeds are described as their preparation for the wedding to come. If it's right to see this imagery as parallel to the imagery that Jesus uses in his parable, then the best way to make sense of Matthew 22, 11 to 13, I think, is to see Jesus warning his followers of the danger of a mere verbal acceptance of the call to salvation, a mere profession, as we saw in one of his earlier parables. To truly accept the call of God, the invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven during this life, means not only to show up where God's people are, but to be dressed appropriately, to live the life of a follower of Jesus. I'm not talking about whether you're wearing jeans or a suit this morning. This warning is thoroughly appropriate, even for the twelve, for among them stood a man named Judas who looked and acted just like the other disciples, but would prove to be a false disciple, a wolf in sheep's clothing, a fake believer. But don't misunderstand. Wearing the right garments, doing good deeds, doesn't earn a place at the banquet, doesn't purchase your ticket to get into the kingdom. Rather, it's part of the Lord's provision for entering the kingdom and enjoying the banquet. As Revelation 19.8 puts it, it was granted to her to clothe herself with righteous deeds. Each true saint, each true believer, actually does righteous deeds. We do the deeds. We do them. We are the ones who actually act and obey. God doesn't do that for us or in place of us. We do them. However, It is God who grants, who gives grace, who empowers us to do the good deeds that he has prepared beforehand for us to do, to borrow the language of Ephesians 2.10. So as we've seen repeatedly in Matthew's gospel, and we could add testimony from Paul's letters, John's letters, the letter letter of James in particular, genuine followers of Jesus obey Jesus. And there will be some who claim to be believers but are not. And there will be some who really believe they are believers but are not. And as Jesus said in the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 19 and 20, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. In the first parable of this trio of parables, Jesus told in the temple... Just a few days before he would be put to death, he spoke of two sons. The one who entered the vineyard and worked. The one who did what his father commanded him to do is the one who entered the kingdom of God. In the second parable, he spoke of two groups of tenants for a vineyard owner. 
The tenants who would produce the fruit of the vineyard and hand it over to the vineyard owner would be the ones to whom God will give the kingdom. And here now in this third parable, it is those who are both called and properly clothed who show themselves to be those chosen by God to enjoy the life of the kingdom. Which son are you? What kind of tenant are you? Have you accepted the invitation, the call of God through the preaching of the gospel? Have you received the gift of garments, the clothing fit for the king? Have you been changed? Have you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't think you can just show up on your own terms. Your own clothes aren't good enough whether they be designer labels or thrift store hand-me-downs. The banquet is ready. Eternal life is available. The invitation is being extended now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't let it pass you by. Would you pray with me? Father, we're reminded in all of this that We are dependent on your grace at every step of the way. And so we come this morning asking for grace. Grace for those of us who know you, who have accepted the invitation, who have put on the wedding garment, and who are preparing ourselves for the great wedding to come. We need your grace to carry on. We need your grace to keep preparing. And for those who don't know you, who might be listening to the sound of my voice, they need your grace too, to open their eyes, to respond, not like the Jews did in Jesus' day, but to receive the invitation, to receive gratefully the clothing offered, and to be changed. And so would you work your grace out in our lives where we need it? You are sovereign, and you know best. Your wisdom is without finding out, beyond calculation. And so we pray, Father, that you would be at work, pouring out grace upon grace for each one of us in this building, each one hearing my voice. And we pray that you would bring the changes that we need. Help us to respond appropriately. Enable us to respond appropriately. Whatever that needs to look like. Pour out your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.